Hello, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to a, another Monero Meet. Today is November 13th. I hope you all have a great November. We have some people on to talk about some various things that are Monero related, of course. You have myself, Justin. You have Arctic Mine. Hello, Arctic Mine. I am doing good. <laughs> I noticed you took the opportunity to turn off your video at that point. So, <laughs> yeah, I um, it's lagging a bit, and I think the video is slowing it down from a sound perspective. Yeah. That's why I did that. If you if you still have future trouble, I can give you another link that'll further reduce the the, the lag. Um, but thanks for joining us. Um, we have someone on screen, kind of uh, under the username Mister Grumbly Pants. Mister Grumbly Pants, who are you, and why are you here? Um, it's Gingeropolis. I'm here because I'm available, just happen to be. And I'm just present. Not feeling in a great mood, but thought I'd sit down and maybe the coffee would change my spirits. Who knows? So howdy. Oh, welcome, Gingeropolis. This is not your first, I think, but it's one of the first. It's been a while, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um... Okay, uh, we also have Scott. Hello. And also hiding behind uh, the screen is uh, Need Money 90. Hey, Justin. It's been quite a while, but uh, yeah, I'm back. Yeah, Need Money 90 is alive, everybody. Uh, and then we also have Ko. Hello, I'm here. Hello. Thanks, Justin. So we have quite a few people on, so thank you everyone for being here. We have quite a bit to talk about in the Monero ecosystem. Um, first, I kind of want to start the stage with someone you know, talking about what the state of Monero development is, because I know that 0.17.3 sort of has had more work on it, but that's clearly not the hard work. So, you know, can someone fill me in on like what, what gives? <laughs> Uh, I don't know if any developers are actually here. Yeah, try to get VT nerd on. He's he used to join these all the time, but he must have been busy. Arctic Mine, are you familiar with what's going on? I think the uh, they're just working on it. <laughs> well, I, there's a in <laughs> progress. Uh, without there's no set. I don't think there are any set dates for the next hard fork. There, there's some things that are still up in the air, like um, uh, Mr. Berman is working on view tags. He has a PR that he's working on, and that would go into the hard fork. So that's probably going to push it back into early 2022. Can you give people a quick overview of what view tags are? Because these are like, a, this is a really good idea that for whatever reason kind of got buried. And then when people found it again, we're like, oh my God, why didn't we do this earlier? So can you, can you sort of fill people in on what the general idea is and why it's so cool? Sure. Uh, first, Arctic, Arctic Mine, I think we're, we're not hearing you if you're talking to us. But uh, view tag. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? Yeah, now we can we hear can. you now. Did you have something you wanted to add? No, not at this point. OK. Uh, view tags? Right. So it's just this idea to speed up uh, the scanning process when you're looking for outputs in the blockchain. So right now, there's, this, there's several steps you take when you look at an output to see if it's one that you own. 
And with view tags, you can kind of short circuit on a lot of the ones that you don't own. And this lets you skip some steps that are very expensive. So we can get like, a, I think it's around 25% speed up by adding these view tags. And a view tag is only one byte per output. So it's a very cheap uh, optimization, I guess. And this would, so adding view tags would mean that future outputs that are created would be easier to uh, assess whether you own them or not. Right. I sort of got this idea mixed up with the idea of loudly proclaiming that like every time you send a transaction, you always will include a certain tag with it. And so then it would be very, very efficient because you could ignore everything else, but that would fingerprint your transactions because you'd have to know how you would send them. Um, so this is definitely not that idea, correct? Right. So observers would not know from looking at a view tag, they would not have any idea who actually owns the output. They wouldn't get any hints, I guess. So it's just, uh, it's based on secret material that that the uh, transaction author and the recipient can create, but that no one else can create. So it just looks like random, a random bit. So you said it was one byte, or sorry, one, uh, yeah, one byte per, um, per output. Was it, or, or was is it one bit or one byte? One byte per output. Okay, so I, I have seen proposals in the past for increasing both our inputs and our number of outputs in at the protocol level. Um, so I think I, I remember stuff like uh, 16 out transactions being floated. Um, uh, 16 output transactions are the limit right now. Do you mean yeah. like enforcing all transactions to have the same number of outputs? Correct. Uh, I remember some discussions on that and... Uh, I'm curious what the implications would be if we decided to go along with view tags and then later on we decided, hey, you know what, maybe we want to have like, I don't know, 256 outputs per transaction. We find, like, I, I'm, I'm trying to think of what that would, that would do to the uh, long-term ramifications of our ability to scale. View tags would not really impact that scenario. I mean, it would let you scan faster 30% or 25% faster per output, but like it wouldn't solve the problem of now you're increasing the number of outputs by 256x. <laughs> so now you have all these extra outputs, so you still have to look at all of them. Sure. So, but there is one thing you can do when there are, when there are only two outputs in a transaction you can do a little optimization where you only have one view, or sorry, where you only have to do one operation for both outputs, one, one expensive operation instead of two. If you have more than two outputs, then you have to do this expensive operation for each output. But um, it says like these details related to how sub addresses and change address and change outputs work that lets you optimize for two outputs but in the name of in the name of transaction uniformity when there are more than two outputs you can't get this benefit because there's just so many details i can't really explain it but you get you get a little more benefit when there are two outputs but not when there are more than two 
Okay. Who else is is as excited about this as I am? Because I, I, you know, I'm extremely excited for users of Cake wallets to be able to, and of course every other wallet. But you know, the m number one complaint we get is why can't I see my Monero? No, my wallet is not synced yet. What do you mean? <laughs> um, so this is very very important to us, um, and and it's it's fantastic that this this has made its way back into the the dev discussion. It's Just too early in the morning for me to be excited. <laughs> I'm super excited about it. I missed, um, what was this 16 output thing? I, I had to step away and then I came back. Oh, there's this, there's this idea that's been floated to enforce 16 outputs for every transaction oh, okay. so that every transaction looks the same. I don't know if that's had too much traction, but it's definitely been floated. Um... I can see that being a scaling issue, though, because of um, the the sizing and uh, increase that you would put in there, and also stress on verification time. And, and it would increase verification costs by about eight times, because right now the average is about two outputs. I think it's 2.2 .2 outputs on average per transaction. So, so there's yeah. a handful of large transactions that are essentially batched. And then you have the rest of them are basically one and two output transactions. Two, there's only you can only have two output. The one output transactions are ban banned. No, 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 no. Sorry, sorry. Uh, input. Sorry. So it's two. The, the smallest, most of them is is uh, two, but then there's a few that are bigger. Yeah, that's right. I think it's ninety four percent of transactions. The last time. When I was looking at this like a couple of years ago, it was 94% had two outputs. Now, if we standardized on 16, then of course you would, oh, I see what you could do is you could get rid of the weights entirely. And then you wouldn't have that a big impact on fees or, or actually transaction size would be a slight increase, but it wouldn't be huge. You mean, you mean for the bulletproofs? Clawback? Yes. Yes, the clawback wouldn't be any. There wouldn't be any point in that. Yeah, that's what mean. Uh, you know, the whole idea there was that uh, um, the clawback was in place to prevent. Sort of, it was basically to protect on verification time, yeah. because the concept was that the verification time is, is um, was very was significant. So you put this in there so you wouldn't attack the verification time and not pay the. The fee. Now, what it does is it penalizes the the um, the sixteen output transaction in to compensate for that verification time possible attack. Uh -huh. That's the concept there. Now, if you're going to standardize on it, of course you make them all the same. There's no point in uh, in doing that. First of all, sorry. One thing I wanted to add. Can I can I welcome Andres? Oh, for go ahead. <laughs> Welcome, Andres. Thanks for joining us. Yes. Hey, good to see you. Can you can work on me. Yeah, you joined in the Hi. middle of a discussion about you. outputs, <laughs> um, of course. Um, is is I think is is it fair to look at that? You know, yes, in theory, it's definitely better for privacy for every transaction to have sixteen outputs, and to all every transaction have sixteen outputs. But it would come at pretty significant cost especially when you compare it to alternative privacy advances of just increasing the ring size or something like that. <laughs> is that is that a broad summary? Yeah, I think so. It, yeah. 
You could also go. Oh, you're ready. You could also go the other direction and say, why can't we just enforce two outputs? Because those are the most most common ones already. So it's like, why why do we have to deal with these people who make big transactions? They're the outliers. Anyway. Well, the 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 idea was that there is an efficiency in space in doing that. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, which was the idea, and the, and the, originally the, the concept was, okay, so we're going to allow the big players, the exchanges, the large uh, providers, some leeway we're not, uh, in there. But, I mean, it does have a privacy impact because you would assume probably a 16-output transaction is probably someone making a large number of payments, which is more likely going to be an exchange, for example, or a mining pool, as opposed to, say, an individual. So it definitely does have a privacy implication. I think it's kind of a low impact privacy implication compared to some other aspects of the protocol. Yeah, I think that's the main reason, at least as far as I can tell, that this has gotten limited traction, despite it being discussed quite a few times. And we all kind of understand the broad implications, of course. It's just uh, compared to everything else, this is low on the list. And it's also very expensive to address. Well, I know another thing that's been discussed is do we allow, for example, two or 16 as the only two allowed possible um, types of transactions you can make. And that hasn't really received a huge amount of love either. Um, but, you know, years ago, I know that people were worried about certain transactions having three outputs and potentially being standouts as from certain wallets or things like that. So there definitely are some related <laughs> discussions we've had in the past um, but I think they haven't act- actually uh, come up super, super often in the, the recent past. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, the, the two, 216 I probably could be sort of a reasonable compromise on that. I mean, but yeah, but you, do, you are flagging the, uh, the basic... Uh, uh, there was a big discussion at one point, and I think it was quite a few years back, when people wanted three outputs because they wanted to have a wallet fee. And this received a lot of negative feedback. And it was taken out. Um, And so that was one argument that that occurred, that they wanted to have this. And I remember the story at the time, and then it it wasn't done. But it was, it would have been, I think, about two to three years ago. We were a bit longer where there was this concern about the three output one. Um, and then if you say, well, you're going to standardize on four, for example, or something like that, I mean, but I mean, cost, definitely there's a cost in, uh, um, from the basic element, there's going to be a cost in space and, and it's going to be, the cost and it's an overhead to this. Yeah, uh, of course. I think we could probably move on from this topic because yeah. we could just go in circles. <laughs> I, I want to switch. Um, just maybe we'll come back to the MRL stuff later because I know we want to talk about Seraphis. But first, Andres, can you talk about the successful Monoruyo crowdfunding campaigns that you've had? I know you also you have a set of NFTs. Yeah. Oh my gosh, you're using Ethereum. <gasps> so I'll also talk about that too. Yeah, such a shame. Just a shame. Wow, but we could wait for NFTs on Monero, but they weren't happening soon. So 
let's do it. Not even on Ethereum, it's on Polygon. Oh, so I didn't oh even, <laughs> I didn't even know that. Okay, so you went straight for Polygon, I see. Yeah. So yes, so it's yeah. But it's like shitcoin, but even even cheaper. We are cheap shitcoiners. Um so yeah, now the fees on Ethereum, my god. And that's what that's that's because Ethereum doesn't have the beautiful scalability, scalability properties of Monero. Thank you for the. <laughs> I was I was waiting for everything money to jump in and say something about it. We scared. Um, <laughs> so yeah, um, the funding is is doing good. Um, of course, the um, not, not of course, but. It's logical that the that the project requiring more funding is still pretty much uh, stale, uh, which was the psychic. Um, but but there was a lot of movement on the smaller projects. <clears throat> two two got funded since the last time we talked. Um, one of them is um, and both I think both were suggested by users. One of them. Is the um, addition of the offset phrase or offset word to the seal? Basically, I think Feather Wallet works like that. Uh, um, Andres, you may want to turn off your video or something. You're, you're really lagging out. Hopefully you can. Andres, are you here? I think his CPU exploded. Hi, Andres. Wow. You might want to turn off the video. <laughs> you really were lagging out. <laughs> yeah, that was very strange. Everybody just got off. Um, if I may say something, I've been monitoring my CPU load, and uh, cutting off the video will help. Big time. Okay. Let's try. Uh, okay. Is it better right now? All right. Can we still? Can you try talking? Let's let's see if we can hear you. Hello. Hello. We can hear you beautifully now. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so I was saying that both both features that got funded were smaller features. Uh, both I think were suggested by users. Let me check. Uh, yes, both were suggested by users. Um, one is a support for onion for the onion nodes. Uh, I mean, Monerullo supposedly <laughs> because it, it doesn't happen so all the time, but it works with Orbot, so you can connect to to regular nodes using Tor uh, and Monerullo, but it didn't have support. At least it doesn't have support yet. For um, for dot onion nodes for tor, for nodes that are running on Tor, so so this is going to enable that, and we are looking into ways, and we are working on that right now, into ways to integrate not only that but to make the whole Tor integration work better, even for not only the the dot onion nodes. So that's great. And for the part that I, that I have to do, it's like it's looking beautiful. <laughs> but yes, 
and that was funded and it's working on and I'm I'm thinking it's going to be released soon. And not the soon that we are used to in Monero that is like months <laughs> uh, soon really soon. And the other thing uh, perhaps is going to come up uh, afterwards is the um, is the support for mnemonic seeds with offset passphrases with an offset passphrase which uh, I said before, I think Feather Wallet has that. I'm not sure about the official wallet if it has that, I know. Which basically is like an extra word for people that don't know, is that you have your regular seed, your regular Monero seed. And the way that it's going to be implemented in Monero is that when you create a, a new wallet, you have the option, and we are planning to hide it very, very deep into an expert warning or something, you have the option to um, add a, an extra an extra word to that seed, which encrypts the whole thing. So that is interesting. There's some, something that a few people have asked uh, support for, and that's coming up as well. Uh, like a, a normal use case for that, for example, would be if you, I mean, you, you could, but it's very hard to memorize a Monero seed. <laughs> uh, so people just write them down. Um, basically, you put it on a drawer, and somebody might find it and restore your wallet without your consent and spend your money. So a way to make this safer would be to, thanks to the dog that you give his opinion, uh, to make it safer that you, you, you pick an extra an extra word for that that encrypts the whole thing, right? Basically, so... Even if you find the seed and you want to restore with that, all that you will find is an empty wallet because you are missing the, the extra secret super work that supposedly you are not going to write down next to the seed because otherwise <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But we deliver, we discuss a lot about this inside the team. And I mean, we already have an issue with people not writing down their seeds properly, which sounds like crypto 101, but it's still happening. So if we add that, the complexity of a word that is an extra word that may be or may not be there and all that, so it opens up like a, a huge error vector for normal users. So probably it's going to be an expert feature or we're going to put some notice in there just to be sure. But both things are coming and coming relatively soon. Yeah, that, that last feature is something I think Luigi made or he adapted it. I know it's on his Luigi... Monero tools page <laughs> where you and and one of the benefits of that is plausible deniability because it looks like a Monero yes. mnemonic seed and you could literally actually use it as such as like a separate seed mm -hmm. so you could even like put like a tiny bit of Monero there and then send it from there somewhere else exactly so, so that is like this an inside joke that we have here in the Monero team that I I almost I'm always looking for ways to to create decoy wallets somehow because I think, wallets. <laughs> yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I'm sure that when they hear this, they're going to laugh about it. Uh, because just every feature that we, we come up with is like, hmm, well, we could use this for our decoy wallet somehow. Because really, it's the, it's the, to me, it's the, it's the bigger attack surface that you have, right? The, the famous $5 wrench attack and all that. Uh, you can hide stuff a lot and you can have like a very crazy security schemes to save your thing. But if they get access to you and they start hitting you in your head with something, 
to end up <laughs> giving them their seeds. So possibly reliability is super important. And that would help. This feature can help in that. You, you could have that. And even you can you can have, you could have, correct me if I'm wrong, but you could have like several wallets, almost infinite wallets, but several wallets with the same seed, but only different passphrases, which would be like easier to storage and safer to, to not having a copy, a lot of copies around of different wallets that you don't know which one is the good one or not. But you have to remember your passphrase for that. Yeah. And nobody can tell if you restore one. Is the, the, the key thing for the decoy things is that nobody can tell if that's a decoy or not. It's only depending on how, ma how much funds and how credible it is that you left there. So if I understand this correctly, you're crossing a border and there's a limit on how much you can carry across the border. You can have, you simply don't into the password or the one that's got the humongous amount of money in, but just the one that's got a small amount of money. Yes. <laughs> yes, that's the whole thing. It is kind of cool how you can have like one seed and several passwords to restore other seeds from it. Like the whole, I think the concept is actually really, really cool. Um, that way you can like write yeah, it down and you're, I don't want to say you shouldn't ever be concerned about just like you shouldn't put it on a billboard somewhere perhaps, but like, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it lowers the potential risk. Yeah. It could be interesting for a, like an open game, you know, something like that. It's like, okay, you, you can post in the, in, in the newspaper, this is my seal. The first who, get, who guesses the, the next war wins or something like that. But yeah. It's, it's pretty safe, it's safer. And as, as as most Monero things, they look super good and they're super cool on paper. Then you have the, the technical implementation, which is hard, but that's another people's problem. It's not my problem, I'm not the coder. But then you have the UX side of things. And that's all, all, always pretty critical. And, you really need to help as much as possible people not making mistakes. I mean, in the best case scenario, if something doesn't work, it's just the user cannot do something or they don't understand why they cannot do it. And that's okay. It's like, well, you, you hit a roadblock and you look up online and you try to find out. But if you, if you think that the worst case is that if you think you did it right and then you didn't, and then you don't understand and you forget something and you don't access to your phone, so your, your phone gets lost. And you, you notice it a year after you created the wallet and you don't know what the, that last phrase was or something like that. So that is that is kind of tricky. Definitely. <laughs> Okay, um, I want to quickly talk about the Monero CCS things that are open. There are three existing proposals that are not fully funded yet. One is continued Feather wallet development. That is currently at 56 of 93 Monero. One is MJ part-time coding, which is close. It's at 69 out of 72 Monero. And Ospeed, I don't know, the... Rucknium's proposals at 116 of 171. There are also some other proposals that were recently fully funded. Um, those are, uh, 
I don't know. That's actually harder to find than I than I was hoping. Um, but yeah, there are other ones that were recently moved and fully funded. So good for those. And we're, we're close to the other ones being wrapped up. I just wanted to make sure to note those real fast. Um, any other comments on, uh, on funding or anything else, just generally Monero community related? Yeah, I, I could also talk about a bit about the, we made the show already about the NFTs. Um, I don't know how much to explain about that, but uh, I would like to say that the first three batches of NFTs have been released to donors. We we came up with like a scheme, an idea that if you donate more than one XMR, more than one Monero to any of the pending projects or the open projects, or in this case, because we came up with this afterward, after the fact that we opened the donation. If you did it already and you haven't claimed it yet, you can contact the Monero team by either Twitter or by email, whatever you want. Some people wanted to be mentioned. Some people wanted to keep private, as private as Polygon allows it to be. <laughs> but I mean, let's say anonymous. But, um, but yeah, some of them already released um, since Two of the projects were, were were totally funded. There's not going to be any more NFTs for that for those projects released. So they are pretty scarce. Um, um, we're we're getting good feedback about that. People like it. It's not something something super serious, and we are not expecting to make money out of it. It's just a way for us to recognize and give people some fun thing to say or to show that, hey, I contributed to Monero, to Monero, especially if it, I don't know, five years go on and then it's like, hey, I was one of the first ones to contribute to that. So it is working and it's doing okay. Awesome. I, I appreciate the background there. I hope that people find those cool. It seems like they do. <laughs> um, so, um, Co, I want to go back to your Seraphis performance results because that's obviously a really big milestone in the, in the context of Monero moving to a better way of doing its ring signatures. So can you give a broad overview on what type of research you did, what you found, how things are looking, and you can also include all the fancy disclaimers <laughs> that uh, you know people should know before they take these numbers sort of to heart or, or really run without understanding the full context. <laughs> uh, sure, can you hear me? Yep. All right, um, Right. so I, I wrote a proof of concept of Seraphis for several uh, design variants, like implementations of the protocol with different like design, design, design decisions that affect performance. And I also wrote up, or I, coded um, mockups for CLSEG and Triptych for performance comparisons with these protocols. So I have all these protocol mockups in a similar, they're designed similarly so that they're comparable. And then I ran some performance tests with these mockups with a, a wide, wide range of parameters. So parameters that include how big the ring size is, or how many inputs and outputs the transaction has, 
um, or how many transactions you batch together when you verify, because you there are benefits to batching transactions together when you verify them. And then I made some plots with the results and put that, it, you can find those in MRL issue 91. So what are some things I found? Um, I found that as expected, uh, proofs using like, so Triptych uses this, this uh, Groth Boodle proof that I call Grudel, these Grudel proofs, instead of seal sag, which is a, which is what we have right now. And Grudel proofs are much more efficient than seal sag when you have large ring sizes. So as expected, or it's, and also uh, note that Surface uses, can also use Grudel proofs. So my proof of concept uses Grudel proofs for Surface. And what I found as expected is that uh, for large ring sizes, both Triptych and Seraphis perform much better in terms of both transaction size and verification cost when rings when the ring size is large, so larger than um, like what we have now is eleven. Um, let's see what else. So I also found that this one of the variants of Seraphis that I call squashed squashed. Surface squash performs better than everything else when you batch verify transactions. So this this squashed variant uh, moves some of the protocol or the proof logic from the membership proof into more adding more range proofs. And range proofs uh, we use bullet proofs. Bullet proofs can be batch verified for significant savings. So I have this, which was kind of a unexpected result, because my, my early testing, I, I kind of thought that I guess I didn't do enough batch verifying testing. So I saw that the, the bulletproof range, range proofs individually cost quite a bit. Um, but when you when you combine them together, and batch verify them, then you get a big savings. So uh, yeah, so we have this squashed variant, which is pretty cool. That's doing performing better um, than everything else. I also found what else did I find? I found so when you you have this ring, the ring size is a de so it's the, with these Grudel proofs to def, to to define the ring size, you have to define a a base and a power. So like two to the power of four. And if you change the base, then it changes how the proof performs, both in terms of the proof size and slightly in terms of verification costs. So if I, I found that if I increase the, the base to three, then it, the proofs are slightly smaller as a function of the ring size. Uh, but if you go to like base six, then it causes larger proofs. But at the same time, changing the base has such a negligible effect on verification time 
that all the bases are the same. So I think the the result of this this kind of question, this parameter, is that there are three ring sizes that are like good. I I think are good candidates for consideration for. Uh, if surface was implemented and th that's two to the uh seventh i think which is 64 or is that six two to the sixth 64 uh three to the fourth which is 81 and two to the seventh which is 128 so 64 81 128 are candidates i think for uh implementation um even though these Grudel proofs are more efficient than CLSAG, they are still quite expensive as you increase, as you like, as you as you double the, the ring size, you are going to double the verification costs, uh, more or less. So we can't. I don't think we're going to be able to get anything above 128 for the ring size. What else do we have here? Mm, right, so I also found that the squashed variant scales a lot better as you increase the number of inputs to a transaction than the other variants, because uh, since some of the proof logic is moved into range proofs, now as you increase the number of inputs, you increase the number of range proofs instead of that same logic in in the membership proof. So this this logic that's increasing in the squashed variant can be batch verified, while the the same logic can't be batch verified in the other variants. So as a result, the squashed variant uh, scales better with the number of inputs to a transaction. Um, I also investigated whether it could be efficient to, so bulletproofs, you can you can combine multiple range proofs in one proof structure, or you can separate them into separate like proof structures. So you have like chunks of data and you separately, these are separate things, or you can combine them all together into one aggregate proof. So I investigated whether it could be more efficient to split the range proofs in a transaction into multiple chunks. And what I found was that it isn't it is if you do not if you do not batch verify range proofs, then it is more efficient to split in terms of verification costs, it's more efficient to split proofs into multiple pieces. Uh, especially as the number of outputs on a transaction grows. Because, yeah. But if you batch verify over, over like 25 transactions, you combine all, you, you batch verify all the range proofs in these 25, trans 25 transactions at the same time, then it turns out that if those transactions contain split range proofs, then they will verify slower than if they all contained combined range proofs or aggregated range proofs. 
So my conclusion is that splitting range proofs is not more efficient because we have to design for a world where blocks have many, many transactions. So batch verifying is something we expect to be commonplace in, in the world where we are concerned about verification costs. Um, let's see. Finally, oh, did someone want to say something? No, I also just wanted to, I mean, continue. I also wanted to make sure that other people knew that they should ask questions if they have questions. <laughs> oh, sure. Uh, the last thing I looked at, uh, I have this variant called Therapist Merge. And this, so in the other variants, it's possible to for multiple people to provide funds to the same transaction. So multiple unrelated people to provide inputs to the same transaction. Um, Therapist Merge is a variant that disallows this. So only one person can provide funds to a transaction. And the benefit of Merge is that you get a little bit smaller transactions. Uh, but the, the effects on verification costs are negligible. So I think that's a trade-off that'll be interesting to talk about. So I think it's about 96 bytes per input to have are saved if you use merge. Or on the other hand, you can have this ability to collaboratively fund transactions. I have two questions to start there. One, do we allow collaborative merge currently on CLSAG, or is that even possible? And two, not suggesting this is a good idea, but would it be possible to allow the, you know, for most of the time not use them, or most of the time take advantage of the efficiency if someone's just spending on their own, but if someone wanted to merge together, they could spend with the less efficient format. Um. So the only so right now it cannot be be done just because or it can theoretically be done if you hard fork, but it is not possible with the current protocol because of how um, so basically a CL SAG proof has to sign all the other data in the transaction. So you have to you have to know about all the other proofs before you sign your proof. Or before you sign each of the seal side proofs. So it's not like, it's not very um, practical, I guess, to collaboratively fund transactions. Uh, so, but in terms of service, you, I think you'd have to have two different transaction types to, to allow that. There's just no way around it. Because the, 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 the merge part is just a different way of constructing a proof. So it would be distinguishable on chain. Well, I have a, a couple of questions and uh, some comments. Um, the first one that came to my mind is, and I know there was a, a brief discussion of this, is the possibility of using GPUs for verification. Um, and what impact, well, of course, you know, one could significantly lower verification times um, in this. 
And my other one, of course, is to try to get absolute figures, and that is, um, which I mentioned in MRL, but the, the basic idea is if one going to make judgment calls as to, you know, what is an optimal ring size, and I think we need to be looking at what the specific specs and number of threads and so on that are used in a CPU versus what's available in the market so that one can get a real handle where we stand based on being what's, you know, commonly used in high-end and mid-range and low-end um, uh, CPUs that are around. So those are my two points, uh, questions. The, the other one I want to mention was from the perspective of the fee structure, it would appear that to me that uh, with uh, Seraph is pretty well anything under 256, which at 256 is really above, would be fine without having to make any changes to um, a fee structure. The main issue there is if you go over 3,000 bytes, then you have to change the minimum um, the minimum penalty free block size, which is a kind of 300,000 bytes. Otherwise, you will have it. We could reopen some of the issues of issue 70 uh, in the process. Yeah, that's a that's a good detail to keep in mind. Uh, so with the GPUs, I have no idea because I don't know anything about GPUs. So someone would have to try to implement it and then see what happens. Um, the other question was, oh, so I think I so I I wrote a or I put together a an Excel template for the test output for the current commit on my perf branch. So if any anyone could run the perf branch and then give me the um, output, or I could give them the Excel template and then spit plug in the, the the data, paste in the data, and then the graphs will update nicely to show the um, the results from whatever machine ran the test. So I think that that might be useful. People would just want to run run the test. But yeah, I can't like make any judgments about what what numbers people get or whatever. That'll be something other people have to think about. Well, no, I mean, I think what we needed would be just to test it, but Excel would be significantly slower than what we would actually be running on the... Uh, um... Excel? Excel is yeah. just for the results. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, okay. the results. As, as far as multi-threading, uh, I don't know. I haven't looked into that at all, so I don't know. But it should be parallelizable. I mean, basically, yeah, it should be. I mean, yeah, and and that because essentially what happens is most modern CPUs. I mean, you can get like a high-end CPU, so you can get like about twenty-four threads. So uh, parallel processing and multi-threading is going to be actually be critical here, especially once we start getting into significant transaction rates. I think that that would be that, that might be easier to test. If the proof of concept was more integrated with um, the code base, so right now it's pretty isolated mm -hmm. um, because the current code base is, I'm pretty sure, it's multi-threaded. So the the kind of design choices that would be affected by performance results for leading from multi-threading, those are like uh, parameters that can be easily changed with a like a constant. Okay. 
like the ring size or the, the or the ring size decomposition or the like the enforcement of inputs and outputs. I mean, I guess the, the, the issue that comes to my mind, I mean, I, I, I'm seeing a, a 20 milliseconds per transaction as sort of a cap on this. Um, and then you ask the question, okay, what, how many transactions per second will the chain be able to support with given CPUs uh, yeah. that are available in the market? And then what percentage of the um, block time we're going to use for verification? And in theory, I mean, and if it's significant compared to the um, proof of work, then of course it could be a potential that this could be, in theory, I guess, uh, uh, design an ASIC to try to take in an advantage because effectively a portion of your proof of work becomes verification. Uh, that's true. That's a good point. Although with with pool mining, at least, it's you're just mining to a, blo a block template. So you just get this blob of data that the that the pool operator sent you. But but the thing here is, of course, is then that it gives more control to the pools. Yeah. And this sure. is the part, and this is the part that uh, so there is there are some delicate issues here, and this is what I'm getting at. Um, obviously, if we go to GPU verification, then um, I could see that not being an issue if it's significant gain there. But I mean, essentially, you say, okay, you've got a CPU coin because uh, uh, so in principle, a mining node. Could shift a significant amount of hash power into verification, but then you get it's just attackable, and then so you kind of sort of going back from the behind and saying and, and saying, okay, now we're opening the door to to CPUs and even a specific Monero ASIC in the sense that you would be able to just write an ASIC to do verification. Yeah. Okay, I see what you mean. I mean, it's a, it's an interesting element here that we have to look at. So this is why I think absolutes are sort of important because we need to sort of get a grip on what happens. And the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is how does all this scale with uh, uh, Nielsen's law and uh, Moore's law. And Moore's law sort of in a generalized sense, what we're seeing, of course, is uh, not any significant increase in CPU speeds, but we're seeing a massive, a significant increase in the number of calls and number of threats. This is how the growth is happening right now in the CPU industry. Uh, so that's... So we still have this sort of Moore's law-like, which is not really Moore's law anyway, because we're talking three-dimensional chips and we're talking all sorts of other things. On one side, on the on the transaction side side, we're dealing with uh, Nielsen's law, and that seems to me that's not the biggest limit right now. Once we start talking about gigabit connections, which are getting to be fairly uh, common, particularly once you make the leap to fiber in the home, or fiber to... Uh, uh, then you suddenly are talking uh, multi-gigabit connections. I mean, right. we haven't even, you know, so that doesn't seem to be the biggest problem. I see verification as probably the biggest limit in the short term or short to medium term. I think uh, this question of what a device can handle hasn't actually been studied by anybody yet. So I think this is something that really, it's kind of an open research question that someone really needs to jump on and investigate. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been brought up a, a couple times, but I don't think anyone's actually said, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure this out." Well, there was some very early work done, but I thought it wouldn't be particularly relevant right now. I think going back to 2014, 2015, where people were saying, "Well, what it can handle," that was even before uh, uh, Ring CT. Hmm. Uh, the numbers that were thrown around. 
I mean, I, I guess sort of this is where one of the main issues when we do tests, of course, is to release all the specs on the particular machine in question, which actually does provide a lot of information because then you can do basically what you can do is, okay, here are the, the specs of the processor. Then you turn around and compare it to what's available in the marketplace, and you kind of get a feeling where the thing is actually sits as far as you know how how accessible that that computing power is. Yeah, I put I did put the, some details about the computer on the yeah the that's report. yeah that's the key thing. So if you actually know what the specs, I got one thread on this processor, uh, and then one can then and you have the actual specs of the processor, then you can figure out okay. How does this pass mark or how does how does this CPU compare with what's in the market? Where does it lie? And then and the number of threads that you're using. And then you can get an idea of what the potential uh availability with say reasonable, I would say, consumer and enthusiast CPUs uh is available. And that kind of puts effectively a cap on the, what the sort of dynamic cap on the transactions per second of the blockchain is gonna be. Uh -huh. I mean that's kind of the area. Yeah, so anyway, that's kind of the, the area that uh, that gets really interesting in the, in the sense of trying to figure out, you know, well, can we push the ring limit size, for example? Maybe we should uh, make a call to action for people, to, somebody to jump on that. But mm -hmm. It's not something I'm really enthusiastic about. Well, not enthusiastic, but like uh, not my area, I guess. That's totally, I mean, it's totally fair. You can't test with every single no, no. possible computer. You just need to test. But for your case, you take the same computer and you see what the comparative results look like, right? <laughs> um, yeah, that tells you whether a particular protocol is better than another. Which is what, yeah, which is what he's doing. Yeah, which is what you're trying to do. Yeah, but what I'm saying is, it's just the second level where you're trying to figure out, uh, you know, what is available and how realistic that is. Of course, of course. Um, I, just just because it's been an hour, I wanted to like take a second to, to go over some final things you wanted to cover, and we can keep going for a little bit if people want to. I don't have much more time, but um, I want to be cognizant of people's time. Um, so, first, um, I want to thank um, Monero Bull for relaying the Matrix channels to our Discord. So those work today. So yay, Discord is now finally a thing that people can use to join. And I know that not everybody in the Monero community here probably wants to use Discord, but frankly. A lot of people do. So uh, we're kind of missing out, or we're definitely missing out on drawing people in who wanted to more casually follow Monero and get involved. So now that's definitely something you can push people to, and they will still be able to join the vast majority of the discussions. Um, some of the rooms are view only, like Monero Research Lab, uh, so they can see them. But if they wanted to specifically comment, they have to hop actually on Matrix or IRC. But that's something I'm really proud that. Uh, Monero Bull was able to do. So thank you to them. And um, also, I want to remind people that next week, uh, next Saturday, Scott, you're running a, a Monero space meeting. Is that correct? That is correct. Yep. So definitely join that too. We'll have some discussions on on what else we we sort of need to, to wrangle together and do. And uh, one Monero work group that has really taken off since the last Monero meet is the Monero UX workgroup on Matrix, it's hashtag Monero-UX, and that is also relayed to the Discord as well, and I believe it's relayed to IRC, but I'm not 100% sure. But they are quite active, um, especially with making video tutorials and the like, so I strongly encourage everyone to check that workgroup out too if they want to participate with helping with tutorial scripts or helping make tutorials, all those sorts of super fun things that people need. Um, 
So uh, does anyone here have any final questions, comments, anything they want to get across at this, this Monero meet before we, we uh, wrap up here? Nothing on my end. Well, thank you to Me Money Night for joining. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. I'm looking forward to being in the next one when it comes up. Yeah. Um, this one was definitely a little bit more on the formal side, let's say, for the Monero meets, as far as you're concerned, which is good. Um, yeah. But uh, they don't all have to be this way. <laughs> but I, I think we got some really good discussion. I think it would be it make for a good podcast episode to people who want to listen to this. Uh, uh, Coast. Arctic Mine, Scott, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? Not at my end. That sounds good. I just suggest that people look at the surface issues on the MRL uh, GitHub page. So it's Monero Project Research Lab issues. And then take a look, see what you think. So the we didn't talk about it today, but there's also surface address schemes, issue number 92 that I think people really need to look at and think about. Absolutely. It gives us a chance to mm -hmm. finally nip the Janus attack in the bud um, if, if we wish to do so. So um, very important discussions there too. Um, okay, well, thank you, Co. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, Arctic Mine. Thank you, Need Money 90. Thank you, Andres, who's not hosting. here. Thank you. Thanks for hosting, um, Justin. Thank you. Uh, for Monero Research Lab meetings, because that was kind of the main topic of discussion today, those are on Wednesdays. So you can follow the, the calendar at monero.space slash calendar. You can see all the events, add it to your Google calendar or whatever, and you can see uh, when those events will come up. Um, I appreciate everyone, everyone who joined today, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care. Thanks.